Today's message is going to be a continuation in our Created for Significance series. We're in week four out of five of that. And today we're going to be talking about how to invest your one and only life. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 16 today, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. We'll be reading that as we go through the message. We're not going to have that, that read the entire thing, but we're going to be reading it as we go through the message. I'm going to open up in prayer. Father God, this is one of the most important aspects that we can consider in life after salvation is what to do with the life that you have given us. Where we should invest our time, our treasure, our talent. So Father God, I ask Lord that you just open up our hearts this morning. Let us clear any objections that might be flooding into our mind already. And help us to hear what the Spirit would say to us and to this church. Father God, I ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So anyone who has raised more than one child knows you can't treat your children the same, can you? You know that you can't talk to one like you talk to the other. You can't necessarily give one the same freedom that you might give the other. You have to treat people as individuals. The same goes with groups. If you're around a certain kind of group, you know that there's a way you can talk to one kind of group, and there's a way that, that you have to talk to another group that this group over here may not understand or, or really get as well as this kind of group. Especially you see that, I see that in my life, if I'm talking amongst medical people over here, I can use all the big words, big terms, and all that kind of stuff, but if I'm going to go talk to the patient and their family, I have to switch my conversation style and talk to them in a way that they can understand in a way that they can comprehend. Over the last three weeks, we've been listening to Jesus tell stories to one type of person. In Luke 14 and 15, Jesus is surrounded by uh, people who are highly trained and highly but falsely confident religious types called the Pharisees. In Luke 14 and 15, Jesus has all kinds of stories to tell these people. Stories that have been recorded and told and read and learned countless of times over the last 2,000 years. If you've been here the last three weeks, you know that these stories are the story of the great banquet, the lost sheep, and the lost coin. And a capstone of that one is the wayward son. And while Jesus is telling these stories, he's aware of another group that's listening in. A group not that opposed him, like the Pharisees, but a group that is supporting him, a group of insiders. These are his followers. These aren't just necessarily the 12 disciples. This is a group of people that is, are, have been following him around for a, for a period of time now. And this group is so committed to him that they've bet the farm in following him and bet that this was the best decision for their lives and for their eternities. So in typical Jesus fashion, when he gets through talking with the outsiders, he turns to these close followers and has a special education time with them. And I don't mean special education and they were, they were dumb, but he would, he would um, expand on what he was saying to these people and and tell them exactly what these stories were to mean. And so Jesus tells them a very intriguing story here in Luke chapter 16. He tells them a story about a scoundrel. A scoundrel who bet 
the farm on a person that he had offended and that he had mistreated. But because of the character of the person that was mistreated, the scoundrel won the bet and secured his prosperous future. And that's a story I want to tell you today. So in Luke 16, Jesus finishes addressing the Pharisees and turns to his disciples and tells a story of a shrewd manager. And sometimes that word shrewd can mess us up a little bit. We have a kind of a, a negative connotation. But the definition of the word shrewd simply means somebody who is wise and can see exactly what is going on in any particular circumstance. It's not necessarily a negative thing. So in this story, we're going to be talking about a rich guy. The rich guy is a nobleman. He finds out that he's been cheated by one of his employees. He fires the employee, who then does something very creative and unethical, by the way, to ensure his future. The twist of this story is, instead of being outraged by what this, this other person did who stole from him, the nobleman praises the manager for being a shrewd operator. And for centuries... This story has confounded us, especially us in the, in the Western world, because we're very right-brained in the way we look at things. And, and I was one of them. I would read this in the Bible, and I would never understand how Jesus could be using this story to explain the character of God the Father. And finally, it just occurred to me what Jesus was trying to say, and I want to share that with you this morning. And in order to understand this, we have to view it through the lens of the time it was written before we can apply its truth to our lives. So let's just keep that in mind. This was written to an audience in the first century in Palestine. So it's going, we're going to have to go and look at a little bit of cultural, um, look what it meant to that culture. So today's story in Luke 16, the story of the shrewd manager, is a story that Jesus tells in four different scenes. He starts in the master's office, the nobleman's office, the landowner's office. This is where the, man, the bad manager gets the word that he is fired. He's been caught embezzling in our, in our modern terms today. And he's getting his pink slip. The second scene is on the way to get the books. This is where the manager, this bad manager, is having some frantic thinking going on. He's trying to figure out what he's going to do. He's just been fired. He has no, no other way to make a living. And he's trying to get out of this mess. And it shows what this unscrupulous manager knows to be true about the man he's been cheating. He thinks about what it is and what this man stands for. And he comes up with a plan. The third scene we see is with the books. And this is where the manager works out the plan that he hatched on the way to the books. And the plan works flawlessly. And the fourth scene, in the master's office again, is where the climax comes. So let's walk through each of these scenes. Scene number one, in the master's office. And in, each, in this scene, three different characters are introduced. And the first character is the master. The master is a wealthy Middle Eastern landowner. Owner. Jesus calls him a rich man and tells us that the people in the area respect him so much that many of the people that, that he is renting out this land to come and tell him that his manager is cheating him. 
Jesus' exact words were seen in verse 2. He says there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And the tense of the verb in the original language of Luke, which was Greek, indicates that the the manager was accused of repeatedly doing this kind of embezzlement. That that the people knew that the the landowner was not charging that much, but the manager said he was charging that much and he was taking the difference. So they know exactly what kind of man the landowner is and what kind of man this manager is. So when the master asks him about it, he asks calm and graciously. He doesn't scold. He doesn't berate. He doesn't threaten him. He doesn't demand repayment or put the manager in jail, which were well within his rights and his culture. And in this story, he's the picture of Father God. The second character that we see is the unscrupulous scoundrel manager. He's the agent for the master. He's the guy that runs everything. He's the middleman, the manager, managing property person. Only he's not managing him, he's mismanaging them. And he's not just some guy off the street, he's not just some relative. This is an educated man. This is a man who was hired, in our way of thinking, he would be the MBA or the chief financial officer of this company that the the master runs. So he's the one that handles the books. The third group in the scene is hinted at but not present here. And they are the debtors. These are peasant farmers who live on the land as sharecroppers. Each year they negotiate with the master through the manager to farm a certain amount of acres for a certain amount of crops and then the master would get some of that back in payment for renting this property. That's a setup for the action. The entire action of scene one takes place in two sentences and both from the lips of the master. The first sentence is a question. The manager calls The master, excuse me, calls the manager into his office and says, what's this I hear about you? And here's where a little bit of Middle Eastern culture kicks in that we can kind of recognize for ourselves. In these types of situations, when if you're in the Middle East, when you are accused of a crime you know you're guilty of, there was only one thing you could do, and that is to stay silent. We kind of don't know that today. If you watch any lawyer or crime type shows the defense lawyer comes in tells his client to shut up and he says if you don't talk you'll walk right that's kind of the same thing that that is going on here the manager is not going to say anything that is going to incriminate him even more because he doesn't know how much the manager knows and the master's the master's not dumb he knows what the silence means He knows he's guilty. So the master delivers the second sentence. He gives the manager his dismissal. He said, you can no longer be manager. You remember a program, well, about six, eight years ago now, before he became president, Donald Trump would sit there and and to the apprentice that did the worst, he'd go, you're fired. It's exactly what's going on right here. So the manager stays silent, and the silence is supremely significant in this sentencing. The manager in this culture is indirectly affirming at least the following, that he's guilty. 
The master knows that he's guilty. The master expected honesty and obedience, and disobedience would bring judgment. And he can't get his job back by offering excuses. So this manager, this shrewd manager, doesn't dwell on how he can get his job back. He knows he can't. All his energy right now is going to be focused on his future. I mean, he has really messed up when you think about it. Not only has he gotten a landowner mad, but he's also cheated all the townspeople. So he has no friends to start with here. So the master says he's fired. He must turn into company books. You know, what's he going to do? And he's thinking about this. Put yourself in this guy's position for a moment. You're leaving the office and you're thinking, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do? I mean, I'm expected, according to Old Testament law, not only to turn over these books, but to turn over all the money I took, too. Anything I've mismanaged, I'm expected to pay that back, or the master can throw me in prison for life. But the manager thinks about it for a moment, and he said, you know what? He didn't even scold me. He didn't even say, you scumbag, get out of my office. He didn't like cry out and, and rage and just have the guards take me immediately to jail. He realized something about the master, and that is he is a merciful man. And he's thinking about that as, he, as we go into scene two here. And scene two is on the way to get those books. The master has said in verse 2, give an account of your management. So what is an accountant, or how does he account for his work? He keeps books, right? We've seen them, ledgers. You see it sometimes in, uh, in the church annual report. We keep books. We keep records. In Middle Eastern culture, when the person gets fired, they're fired on the spot. It means no severance pay, no 60-day notice, no unemployment. The guy is terminated, he's now powerless, friendless, without a job, and he only has one thing left to do, and that's to turn over the books. And so on his way, he's thinking, what do I do now? My pastor has taken away my job. And he starts mentally laying out his options. Well, how am I going to make a living? How am I going to support my family? How am I going to get out of this mess? And it says in verse 3, he's, he's going through some of these options, when he says, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. And while he's walking, he comes up with a plan, and this plan is based on everything that he knows about the master. And his thinking goes kind of like this. I've been manipulating another man's money for years. I've been stealing from him, and I've been stealing from the people around me. I'm too weak for manual labor, and begging is beneath me. So what am I going to do? So what's his problem? He has no way to make a living. No one is going to hire him. No one likes him. No one trusts him. And there's no way in his current state of popularity he could ever hope to get a job because his reputation is going to spread and everyone is going to know he's a thief. So he comes up and thinks up a solution, not based on his reputation, but based on the master's reputation. And that is to trust the master's mercy. After all, he's a man that didn't even reprimand the manager when he let him go. 
He didn't demand repayment. He didn't demand that he was taken to the, the stocks or flogged or anything. He didn't make a huge fuss. He realized how generous the master was, how merciful that he was being in this case. So this bad manager comes up with a plan. I know what I'll do. I'll stake my entire future on the master's reputation. And so he does. And that brings us to scene three with the books. Scene three reveals the plan that he has come up with. Ironically, the plan has everything to do with the master and nothing to do with him. And the manager has to move fast because he knows his entire future depends on changing the villagers' perspectives or perceptions of him. He's got to change the mind of his master's doubters, and he's got to do it before they realize he's fired. They have to do it before he realizes he no longer has any authority. So the manager knows for this plan to work, he must assume two things. First, that the manager is still an authority. The debtors can't know that he's been fired. They must believe he still works for the master and has all the authority to manage the legal contracts. So as soon as he gets back to his office, he finds a servant and he says, quick, some are all my master's debtors. Get them all in here. As soon as the first tenant shows up, he pulls out a contract and he lays it out in front of him. He says, quick, how much do you owe my master for this year's rent? In verse 6, it says, 800 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot of olive oil. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. He calls in the next one, lays out a contract in front of him, and he asks, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Take your bill and make it 800. The actual monetary value, by the way, for both of these was exactly the same. It sounds like one is getting away with something and one is not. No, he's looking at the monetary value. Both of these debts are reduced by the same amount, which was 500 denarii. The second assumption that he has to do right now is that the master has approved of this debt reduction. Because if not, he'll never go along with it. He'll never change their perception of them, and he has no future at all. But he, he manages to pull it off. One by one, the tenant farmers come, and they all have their bills reduced. This manager risks everything based on what he knows about the master, that he's generous and merciful. Now, reducing these bills was not unheard of, but it was rare. Jewish law provides for rent reduction based on extenuating circumstances. For example, when crops would die, when there a blight would spread, when winter was harsh, when an invading army would come in. But these discussions never began with the owner. The owner wouldn't just automatically do this. The tenant had to come and beg for mercy to the owner, and then he could have his, uh, his uh, rent reduced. So each farmer is astounded when he sees his bill, and he hears the word, the rent reduction. 
And they all wonder how they can be so fortunate. And the manager was only too happy to tell them. I'm going to paraphrase this in a 21st century way of saying it. He would tell them, well, I caught the old man in a really good mood. And I, I, I wanted to see if I could do something for you. I've been working on this deal for a while, and it, it came through together today. It's a great deal from you, and it came from the master, but I'm the one that, that thought it up, just so you know. This would be like saying you bought a car, and a few year, days later after you bought the car, the salesman who sold you the car says, hey, have you gotten the check yet? And you're thinking, wait a minute, I should be sending him a check, not him sending me a check. You say, well, what check? Well, the check that's coming from the dealership, I convinced the manufacturer to give you a $5,000 rebate for no particular reason, just because I'm a good guy and these people listen to me. Who's your new best friend, right? This guy just got you $5,000 for free. Only these guys haven't gotten a $5,000 rebate. These tenants haven't gotten just $5,000. $5,000 is a lot of money, but this is not nearly what they have been um, forgiven here. 500 denarii is equivalent to a year and a half's pay in Bible times. Using the average pay for a middle-class worker today in America, which is about $50,000 a year, they got a $75,000 rebate. Talk about who's your next best friend, right? This is what this manager is doing. And as quick as he can, the, ma the manager gathers all this up and he brings it back to his master and brings it to him. And this marks the beginning of scene four. We're back to the master's office. And this is where we have to understand Middle East culture. And then everything becomes clear of why the, ma of why the, um, the master reacts the way he does. You see, as the manager reaches the master's office, the master can see what happened. He's not dumb. He can probably hear the evidence because there's people throwing parties outside that they've just got forgiven $75,000. Because in the, they're, they're out there, they're throwing a party, they're celebrating his name. He knows exactly what's going on. They're thinking never before in history has there been a man as wonderful, as kind, and as noble, and deserving of our loyalty and praise as this master and his manager who did this great thing for us. So what does the master do? The master stops for a moment and reflects on his choices. Am I worried more about my reputation or about my money? A way this is illustrated is in a story about the famous Arab warlord named Saladin. You may have heard that term. He was the, um, the Arab warlord and sultan that sacked Jerusalem several times during the Crusades. A condemned man, murder, was brought to him after being begged for mercy. He was getting, the, this guy was getting ready to be beheaded, and he, he called upon Islamic law of the time and said, I demand to see the sultan and have him pronounce judgment. So they brought him before Salahuddin, and he cried out, Most gracious sultan, my sins are great, but your mercy is even greater. Salahuddin saw the man doing this, 
and forgave him. Now, in our, in our Western mindset, we think that worked. <laughs> I mean, just because he, he said I was merciful, that worked. It's, it's very difficult for the Western mind to grasp, but for the Eastern mind, reputation is everything. The Bible reflects this mindset when it says that a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Put that back now with our story. The main point of what Jesus is teaching us today is a the wisest move we have when we mess up is to trust our master. The wise move is to bet the farm that he is gracious and merciful and generous. How do we apply this to our lives? Many years ago, I was at a conference for pastors where the speaker asked a question. He said, what are you going to do with your one and only life that will invest and bring forward, that you can bring forward into eternity? See, that's the question behind all this drama that Jesus is asking the people he's teaching at that time. What are you going to do with the one asset no one can take away from you? And that is your time and your life. A wise person uses it to gain a future for themselves. In regards to this story, Jesus gives the first three lessons. He says in verse 9, he says, I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let's make that 21st century again. Jesus is saying you only have one life. Use it to enhance your eternal future. Think about what it will mean into eternity. Many times, many of the things that get us down today, many of the things that, that trouble our mind, a billion years from now won't even matter. Because you know what? You're going to be alive a billion years from now. Whether it's in heaven or hell, you will still be alive. Invest wisely right now. Use your life to enhance your eternal future. Use it to build friendships with people who can say to you someday in heaven, thank you, thank you, I am here because of you. The second lesson Jesus teaches at the end of this story is this. In Luke 16, verses 10 through 13, he says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little can al will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy with handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? This is Jesus' way of asking us, do you want a big kingdom assignment here and in heaven, or do you want a little assignment here and in heaven? The principle behind the question is this, the better I invest what I have, the more that can be entrusted to me. 
And it's not just monetarily. What Jesus is really referring to here is spiritual riches, authority. The final lesson. Jesus says that no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve two kingdoms. You can't invest your life in two different places. You can't work on my stock file over here and then run across the street and work on God's stock file effectively. You can't ride the fence and we can't have it both ways. You can't serve two masters. Let's all rise. Today is Palm Sunday. This is where Jesus chose the humblest way to enter a city that he, he could come up with at that time, and that was riding a donkey. He didn't, he didn't get up on a big horse. He didn't call for a parade. One just happened. He came in humility. He came in with a laser focus to do his Father's will during that time. 